2024, an election year like no other. From the candidates to the issues, from voter integrity and analysis, we'll discuss debates, trends, patterns, election laws, and more. This is Vote 2024, Path to the Polls. Trump's legal and political challenges intensify. Nikki Haley, to quote Tom Petty, she won't back down. In this edition of Pass to the Polls, Vote 2024, we'll talk about the hefty penalty Trump has to pay E. Jean Carroll and some considerable other legal challenges in the near future and his challenge winning the voter support that he desperately wants. I'm Bruce Hamilton. Welcome to Vote 2024, Pass to the Polls. My guest, guest once again, Daniel Cronrath, a professor of political science at Florida State College, Jacksonville. Welcome. Good to have you here. Good morning, Bruce. Thanks for having me once again. All right. At this point, Trump expected his path to the GOP nomination and hopefully the White House to be easy, but it's a much rockier road than he expected. He expected a yellow brick road, but with Nikki Haley refusing to drop out, despite some pressure from the GOP leadership, despite the fact that she didn't win in New Hampshire, there was like a, a 10 or 11 point margin between mm -hmm. them, she's continuing on to South Carolina. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting result for Nikki Haley coming out of New Hampshire. You know, there was a lot of polling which occurred before New Hampshire, which showed uh, former Ambassador Haley down by as much as 20 or 22 points. Obviously, her campaign feels buoyed uh, to some degree just by the, the fact that the, the margin of loss was less in New Hampshire. Uh, than what they anticipated. But Bruce, we've really got to look at this pragmatically and understand where she's at in this race. She's deeply underwater heading to her home state here by the end of February in South Carolina. Her 12-point loss to Donald Trump occurred at the expense of tens of millions of dollars that were funneled through her campaign and through her super PAC and through outside contributions. So really, if you're looking at any kind of viability, I think a lot of prognosticators or a lot of people uh, who are looking at this race, uh, you have to ask yourself the question, what makes uh, former Ambassador Haley at this point uh, any more uh, uh, viable as a candidate than Governor DeSantis? Really, if you're looking at the situation, you're looking at money spent, you're looking at the results uh, when it comes to our first two states in Iowa and South Carolina. Uh, so we're just going to have to see where the race goes forward at this. I know that there's been rumblings this week that both representatives from the Trump campaign and the Haley campaign are going to be meeting with a lot of wealthy Republican donors to determine where money is going to be going through. So obviously, even though Bruce, you had said that Donald Trump wanted to have a yellow brick road, there are still donors in the Republican base out there who are still clinging to some sort of hope that they can invest in uh, former Ambassador Haley and that she presents an alternative that a lot of centrist and a lot of classic Republicans in the mold of a George H.W. Bush or a Ronald Reagan or, still try, or John McCain are still trying to seek that individual for the Republican nomination. Didn't Governor Sununu just come out the other day and say, hey, look, don't under, underestimate Nikki Haley? He did, but I mean, I mean, I think one you could say, uh, what's the impact of Governor Sununu now in the race versus the you know he was able to help perhaps with the endorsement narrow the gap a little bit in New Hampshire. Again, Bruce, if you just read the tea leaves, I mean, it, it would seem to me that she's set up for an annihilation in her home state. I don't know where you can go in a presidential campaign if one of the first three or four states is the home state that you were from, a two-time elected official and you end up losing by 20 or more points, which is where she's at now in all, all the polls. I mean, at some point, you just have to say the show is over. We appreciate your candidacy. We appreciate the fact that you brought the Republican Party in many, many ways a, a different choice than Donald Trump, particularly when we talk about foreign policy and what, what's going on internationally around the world. Uh, however, I just don't see, unless something were to change right now, something were to change that, that she's going to be able to, to outperform polling in her home state, 
then I think we have to start talking about the rating the political epitaph, at least for this presidential cycle, for Nikki Haley. All right, I'll talk about some things that might be changing. If you watch Donald Trump after New Hampshire, he was seething. I mean, he was angry. Um, are we getting to the point where things like the E. Jean Carroll defamation verdict, the pending Supreme Court decision in Colorado, I, I doubt that the Supreme Court is going to vote to keep him off the ballot, but the people of Colorado are saying, you know what, we don't want him there because he's an insurrectionist. But those are just a few of the legal challenges that are coming about. Could they become a major liability for Donald Trump? Well, it depends upon the state. I mean, if you're, if you're looking at a state which electorally is in play, and it was a state with a democratic with a democratic legislature, which is going to have the ability, or a democratic high court, state supreme court, which is going to be able to hear these cases and say, you know what, we don't want Donald Trump on the ballot. Well, then the next calculation you have to do is you have to consider, is this an actual toss-up state, one that Donald Trump can win? Colorado is not really a toss-up state in this, in, at this point. It has become more and more democratic statewide in the last several elections. So uh, because it's not like Maine, for example, or Nebraska, where they award their electors proportionately based upon how they perform in each congressional district in the state, Colorado is a winner-take-all state. And as it is right now, it doesn't look like Donald Trump would win Colorado anyway. Now, if more states were to jump on board with this, if they were to be states, say, for example, and this may seem like a very, very small amount of electors, but say a state like New Hampshire, Okay, which is constantly considered to be a bellwether state, a swing state. If Donald Trump were to be taken off the ballot there, would that have impacts on the Electoral College? That could very possibly happen. All right, well, let me get back to, to Nikki Haley here for a second, because there are people who think that she's a more formidable challenger than she's, she's giving credit for. When she was asked whether or not she'll stay past South Carolina, she kind of hedged a little bit. You know, she wouldn't say if she'd be there through Super Tuesday. Do you think the GOP leadership is just going to you know, finally say, look, it, it's time for you to bow out. Because I know that there were people in the Republican Party who basically said, let's just go ahead and call Donald Trump the presumptive nominee. Sure. And it was Donald Trump who basically said, nope, mm -mm, don't want that at this point. But is, is push going to come to shove for Nikki Haley at one point? Yeah, I mean, the push is going to come to shove when people stop writing her checks. I mean, that, that's a, there, there's two things that every candidate running for president or really any office needs in order to get elected. One is media exposure and two is money. Okay. Typically, as the money falls away in the donor class within the Republican Party, if you think about the Koch brothers or the other large super PACs who have been supporting her up to this point, the Lincoln Project, other organizations within the Republican periphery who have been trying to uh, basically um, lift up her candidacy for something that would rival Donald Trump in these primaries. Uh, if she's not able to produce in her home state, if she's not able to tangibly come out and say, hey, by the way, in South Carolina, before the election, I was down 20 points in the polls, and now uh, look what the voters of South Carolina delivered us, uh, a six-point loss or a, a four-point loss, or something which would, which would say, hey, as voters are listening to my message, I am closing the gap with Donald Trump. Once that narrative goes away, and particularly if it goes away in your home state, once the cash goes, you're not going to be able to run away. Well, let me ask you about those donors. Sure. Donald Trump became a bit petulant. And he says, you know what? You give money to Nikki Haley, you know, you're done with me. I mean, he, he basically said to those donors, you know, you don't exist to me if you give money to Nikki Haley. That's, that's kind of childish. Well, it's childish and it's also uh, uh, soon to be forgotten. Right? Many things in Trump's orbit, as we talked about the last time that, that you invited me on, many of the things in Trump's orbit, uh, orbit as soon as you apologize, or as soon as you kiss the ring, so to speak, of Donald Trump, then all is forgiven. I mean, I've cited this previously, but I mean, just think about the salacious and the, and the, the flat-out political combat that he had with Ted Cruz in the 2016 primary election, and just months after Donald Trump literally calling Heidi Cruz ugly on social media, Ted Cruz is uh, 
you know, uh, uh, phone banking for Donald Trump, helping to raise money. So, uh, honestly, a lot of those, if it, going back to the 16th, think about the fact he referred to Senator Rubio as little Marco Rubio, low energy Jeb, all of the names that he had for these candidates. But as soon as they were to come in tow, okay, as soon as they were to basically say, you know what, our campaign is over, uh, very much like the words that our governor skillfully chose saying, I thought that there was room for me in the Republican Party. The Republican Party has demonstrated that they are not done having Donald Trump be the leader of the party. I support Donald Trump. Yeah, but Ron, De Ron DeSantis has pretty much made it clear he's distancing himself from Donald Trump for the time being. You don't see him out there stumping for Trump. I think you will. I think you will. Eventually? Yeah, I, th I think you will eventually. I, think, I, I appreciate what you're saying, and I think a lot of that is going to be the initial hurt that is experienced by the family, by the candidate, after having to drop out of a race that he also spent tens of millions of dollars on. I just don't think that if you have a future in the Republican Party, which certainly Governor DeSantis still has, okay, uh, being a, a 45 years old, I believe, uh, still the governor for three more years of a large uh, uh, red state, I don't think that he's going to go anywhere politically. And, and wanting to run in 2020. And wanting to run again and wanting to put himself in a position where he's going to be very, very careful to parse in these first weeks out of the race. I'm not going to say anything negative about this president. I'm going to leave the last statement I made on the Sunday that I got out of this race stand. And then, an, oh, by the way, in time, as things heat up and after we get closer to the conventions taking place in the summer, I, I can almost guarantee you're going to see Governor uh, DeSantis out there arm in arm with former President Trump. Especially if Trump were to win and he wants his endorsement in 2028. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Because, because regardless of how we try to make the past, when you look at the Republican Party, this is just the reality. Then Congressman DeSantis owes his political fortune in becoming governor to Donald Trump. That is absolutely well, the Trump fact. Trump will tell you that he owes his political fortune well, to no, him but anyway. Well, no, but of course not. But, but, but if, you look back, if you look back on that field at the time, uh, when, Don, when uh, uh, Governor DeSantis was first elected in the 2017-2018 gubernatorial election, correct? The entire statewide apparatus was behind then Secretary of Agriculture Adam Putnam. Every, every, every elected Republican was firmly in there except... I thought he'd win, yeah. Yeah, except for one person, Donald Trump, who used his cult of personality on Fox News at the time, talk radio, to boost up Governor DeSantis, boost his profile, basically say, this is my guy, this is one of the Trump people that I have in Congress, and he parlayed that into a successful gubernatorial run. Easily, by the way, beating uh, former Commissioner Putnam uh, on his way to defeating very narrowly, uh, then at the time, uh, the mayor of Tallahassee, Andrew Gillum. All right, let me get back to this, this whole issue of political manipulation. The, the Senate is presumably poised to pass an immigration bill. Yeah. You do have a lot of people on Capitol Hill right now who are basically saying, well, Donald Trump told us not to go ahead, especially in the House. And Mike Johnson is saying, you know, it gets to the House. It's, you know, dead on arrival. We don't know if we want to go ahead and support it because Donald Trump told us, don't pass this. I want to use this as leverage against Joe Biden in the general election. Biden says, I'm ready to go ahead and close the border. So is it right for Donald Trump to take a measure that the American people have been calling for? And Trump also did this by saying, you know what? I want the economy to fail because I want to use this against Joe Biden. I, I, should he be using these things as campaign issues? Well, you know, here's what's going to happen, Bruce. I think at the end of the day, we're going to have to determine how much Trump's stance on this is going to fractionalize his base of support. Okay. And what do I mean by that? As the details of this immigration deal emerge, and right now we have not seen the complete package, we only know that this is, a lot of people have characterized this as actually a pretty pro-Republican bill that's been agreed to by the Democrats and by President Biden. Uh, a lot of things that have been teased out, which have been things that, that the uh, Republican Party and that a lot of the MAGA base have been asking for now for several years relative to immigration. If this language is actually brought out and it appears the way it appears right now, there are going to be legitimate Donald Trump Republicans who, who are going to have to ask themselves the question, like, listen, 
and a divided Washington, D.C. when it comes to immigration. We're getting this concession, that concession, this concession, that concession. And yet now, by the way, Donald Trump is literally telling us that we shouldn't support this because it's not the deal that he could negotiate. Now, Donald Trump was a prior president. Donald Trump had control of the Republican House and control of the Senate from 16 to 18. What were those affirmative measures that he was taking then in his first term while he was out trying to build a wall and have Mexico pay for it? What were his actual governing accomplishments where he was working with Democrats to try to find a way to do something along our southern border? Now, given this opportunity again in 2024, the Republicans are going to walk away from that because they think in the speak of, you know, the, 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 the football of politics, that this is somehow going to be a win for the Biden campaign. Well, my goodness, Bruce, this is not new to politics at all. But if we get a point in American politics where a former president of the United States and a candidate for president is literally saying the quiet part out loud. Don't pass this legislation, which will keep our border safer, because it will impact the ability of me, Donald Trump, to get elected. Those are scary and spooky times in America. But time. Donald Trump said, go ahead and blame me. I mean, uh, 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 those were his words. And, and you know, the, the points you just made, yeah. that was what Mitt Romney said. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mitch McConnell, a lot of the senior leadership of the Republican McConnell's Party. McConnell's distancing himself from Trump, if you oh, 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 of course. I mean, a lot of the senior leadership, I mean, they realize that this could be a potential win for the Republican Party. It's been an issue which has been floating out there. It's going to be an issue that they can say in the fall, look what we did. Look what we did with liberal Joe Biden. Look what we did to pressure him to this compromise position. Is it perfect? No. Okay. But just imagine what the Republican Party, hypothetically, imagine what the Republicans could do with the resolve we've shown on this issue if we were to get President Trump back into the White House this fall. This is what Republican leadership looks like. Finally taking an opportunity to at least solve 80%, 85% of our border crisis. Now, if you're going to give us President Trump back, watch what we can do as a party. That's the Republican, that's the Republican pitch to the American people right now and to, and to their supporters. Why President Trump would be going down this road, only President Trump can know. Obviously, Bruce, we've talked about this before. There is a certain percentage of the American people out there that if Donald Trump were to run over somebody in, in Fifth Avenue with his car, they would still vote for him at the end of the day or, or shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, I think. It, how many of those people, when we talk about that, again, that fractionalization of the Republican Party, how many of those individuals are going to stick loyal with him? How many are going to question him? And I think the biggest thing for everybody out there watching this, we also still just have to see what's in this. Yeah. What is it going to be at the end of the day? Uh, uh, obviously, there's been a lot of carefully orchestrated leaks regarding what is in this package to try to get the D.C. media apparatus talking about it as we get, move through our news cycle this week. Uh, but again, it's hard to have any kind of de anything definitive until we see the language of the bill. And we should know Thursday or Friday from what I'm, yeah, what I'm hearing. Yeah. And, and you know what? I mean, there are those who believe that Donald Trump wants to sow discord and it's, it's not just rancor on his part. But if it, if it is more than just verbiage from Donald Trump, is this an indication of how he's going to work with Congress or not work with Congress? I think that I think that this is just going to be typical scorched earth Trump. He's going to go through. He's going to basically have a uh, agenda which he's going to develop on the fly as we move forward to the fall election year. The one thing I would say about Donald Trump's political acumen, which I find extraordinary when looking at other people, he has an incredible ability to look at whatever issue is pertinent at the moment and then trying to find a way in which he can capitalize on this issue for his own political gain. He does it almost instinctively, Bruce. Without, get headlines. Yeah, with, with, to get headlines and to have individuals in the news media uh, repeat what he's saying. That's going to be the other thing which is really going to be interesting, I think, moving forward this fall, particularly as we look at the splits which are traditionally in our corporate media. 
when we have media that we've established out there, which is you know pro-Biden-esque in terms of CNN, MSNBC versus Fox and Newsmax, who cover the Trump campaign, uh, and, and, and obviously most Republicans turn to those outlets for their confirmation bias, and of course Democrats turning on Maddow and their sources of information. What kind of coverage are we going to be getting of this campaign? Um, are we going to be getting to the point where, for example, on election night, when Donald Trump handily won New Hampshire, you'll know MSNBC did not cover any part of his acceptance speech. They literally just chose to pretend as... And I think was, CNN dumped out. Yeah, and, so, and see, right, exactly. So, so are we going to actually be covering the campaign? Are we going to be putting out their full coverage of Donald Trump? How is that going to be working as we move down? I think also, too, this is something which is going to be really, really hard for the Democrats to identify with. However, this is a forum where we can speak plainly. Uh, Democrats had the luxury in 2000 of basically building a studio for Joe Biden in the basement of his Delaware home and having him campaign from there during COVID. Four years later, what will President Biden look like on the stump? Um, like President Biden, not like President Biden, like his policies, not like his pro pro policies. We do have to understand it's not ages to suggest that we are dealing with a gentleman who's 81 years old. Donald Trump, 77. Who is 77. Uh, both of these gentlemen. But, but I, I think that the one thing that, which, that Trump still has going for him is that Trump has the ability to write off a lot of things that he says as, as being funny. Or that's just Trump. Well, uh, the American public lets him write it off. Truth. Truth. Especially his supporters. That is true. Uh, Biden has a little bit more time trying to cover up for that. Uh, because he's always been more serious. He's always been more pensive with the things that he develops in, in terms of being policy. Uh, what will we see with Joe Biden coming up in the future? And this is another question, lingering question. Will this be in my lifetime, my lifetime, for a lot of your listeners today, the first presidential election that we actually don't have a presidential debate. Oh, I, I don't will, think will, will Joe Biden and Donald Trump even debate? Will they even give this that option? I don't think so. You know, Nikki Haley is saying to Donald Trump, debate me, what are you afraid of? Joe Biden and, and, and Donald Trump, I don't think they're going to debate. You know, let me get back to the media issue you brought sure, up, yeah. which isn't something that, you know, we, we had discussed previously. Uh, there was an article that I read. Uh, there are media layoffs all over the place. Yeah. And the concern is without a, a, a good media presence, and I'm talking about a media that has no bias, I'm talking about a good print media that really does effective, vetted reporting. What we see, the information that's viable to us, the information that's available to us or not available to us, is going to hurt the American public. Yeah, just in terms of what we don't have access what to. What we don't have access to. Yeah, it, well, because for sure. Because there's nobody to hold the, the candidates really, truly accountable. Yeah, I mean, I think that you can see this at the national level. You can see this at the local yeah. level. Uh, um, you know, just for example, if you were to look locally here in Jacksonville, think about some of the quality work since their unionization, which has come out of the TU. Mm -hmm. Individual like Mark Woods and Nate Monroe, who are really kind of like that classic journalist going back and trying to expose the story, trying to dig into the story. Work that Channel 4 has done as well, very well over the years, too, getting to the heart of something right. no matter. A lot of that at the national level has just been lost to sensationalism. Who is the intrepid reporter who's going to be out there providing you know, as best as possible in today's media landscape, um, unfiltered news. And, and here's the biggest part. With people either seeking confirmation bias or people wanting to avoid um, the uncomfort, discomfort, what we refer to as cognitive dissonance, where we're confronted with information which we don't want to hear, therefore we turn the channel. Yeah, people hear what they think they're going Bruce. to hear, what they want to hear, and, and they will ignore you if they don't hear whatever their bias happens but, to be. But here, here would be the question I have for you. Let's just say that in this fall of this election that there were people who did emerge, the kind of journalists that you're talking about, right down the center who are going to be preventing the voters with facts. Here's an actual voting record versus rhetoric, for example. What's going to be the oxygen in the room for that kind of person to even be able to report? Or are we all just going to run to our silos, to our tribes, and only listen to that information that even if that person existed, 
What's to keep us from just it, it doesn't exist. I can tell you that, you know, in, in the context, and this forum, I have more latitude. But when I when I do the news and I report something that Joe Biden did, I report something that Donald Trump did, people will challenge me and I'll say, you know what? You heard from the candidates. I didn't edit it. I didn't change it. Yeah. Yet they'll challenge me. And it's like, how can you challenge what is fact? But they want to because they didn't hear what they wanted to hear. Right. Uh, but that's the American landscape. Oh, right, let, me get right. to, let me get to Joe Biden. Yeah, um, let's talk about Biden. He has ratcheted up the rhetoric. For three years, he didn't say the name Trump. Now he's saying it. And um, on X, formerly known as Twitter, he chided Trump by invoking former First Lady Melania Trump. He wrote, be best, which of course was the campaign, an anti-bullying campaign. Um, is Joe Biden about to play a different ball game here? I have no idea, and I don't know what that ball game is going to look like. I don't know what it looks like if Joe Biden's playing hardball, to be quite honest with you. Um, there's times I see Joe Biden, and he seems like he's on top of his game. There's other times I see Joe Biden, and he looks like he's really struggled to articulate his thoughts. Um, I would be very, very careful about going after any first lady, quite frankly, or the family of anybody. I think Donald Trump is fair game, but I think... Again, this is difficult. Well, for he me. wasn't going. He wasn't going after the first lady with that. Guy. Right, right. He's going after. He was her going husband. after Donald Trump. Right, 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 right. So right. there's a difference there. Right. He's, he's telling. He's he's telling Donald Trump, "You're bullying. You know, do what your wife says. Be best. This bullying isn't going to be effective." I mean, you're asking I mean, me. You're, 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 asking, you're asking me in this forum. I don't think it's going to be that effective, only because this is kind of a seven-year-old slogan now. Right. I remember back in seventeen when Melania Trump picked her first lady issue that she was going to focus on, and bullying and cyberbullying were kind of like the issue that she wanted to work on as first lady, and like everybody in America was just like, "Is this like is that what? How ironic is this? Mm -hmm. Like your husband's the biggest virtual media bully that's out there, and like, this is going to be the issue that you reform, yeah. right? This is going to be the issue that you champion. So I don't know where Biden's going to be able to go with that if he's going to get, be able to get any kind of rise out of Trump on that issue. Um, the one thing I will tell you going back to the last segment that I find very interesting about Joe Biden is we need to remember this, and this is one of those things that in polite circles will get you uh, eye-rolled, as you suggested before. Joe Biden has had problems with veracity, Bruce, since he's gotten into politics. You, were, you worked in the film. You mean putting his foot in his mouth? Putting his foot in his mouth. If, if, if folks who are a little bit older in this, in this audience, and I reminded this before people, before the 2000 campaign, uh, and was basically you know, attacked for trying to be anti-Biden, the reality is he had to drop out of the 1987 election because he plagiarized other people and, and lied about his college record, his law school transcript, all other kinds of things, Bruce, that weren't, that weren't just foot and mouth stuff. I mean, he, he had some veracity issues that at least in our political climate in 1987, required him to drop out of the race, okay? And I think that as, as Biden gets older, and there's going to be a lot of people out there who are saying, listen, Biden is still a capable leader. He still has a vision for this country. He's still a pragmatic centrist. He's the Joe Biden who has spent decades in Washington, D.C., who has an established record. And yes, he may, be, he may be older now, that's fine, but he's gonna be the individual who provides us with the leadership. The one thing I would caution, again, as individuals out there who think he may just be having senior moments, I would push back that, there, that Joe Biden has been Let's be kind, gaff-prone for a lot of his adult political career. So how much can we attribute that to age, or how much can we actually attribute that to the man himself? That's, that's worth bearing out. You know, and I think that when push comes to shove, and we discussed this the last time you were here. Yeah, sure. Everything's going to be about the economy. And, you know, Joe Biden talks about the fact that the economy is healthy, but it's not the kind of economy that he's talking about. It's, you know, when you go to the grocery store, it's when you buy a car, it's, it's when you pay your bills. And as far as the American public is concerned, the economy is not healthy right now. Yeah, and let, let, really quickly, I mean, I think that when you look at every metric, this is something the Biden campaign and his supporters are correct. In every traditional metric, which we have measured the economy, Bruce, the economy looks healthy right now. 
Yeah. It, it truly does. Oh, it does. But, but the one thing that I think, that, and this is going to be something that the Biden campaign has to shift to, because I think it's an area that he can really exploit with voters, is this idea of the fact that just because inflation is now longer, longer 9% and it's down to 3%, it's not like those, pre, those prices reset to before, be before the pandemic. We're still all going to the grocery store. We're still all seeing two liters of, of soda at Publix for three. Still living paycheck to for three sixty nine. Yeah. We can remember those two liters being two forty nine right before the pandemic, and we can also still see the corporate earnings statements coming out from a lot of these large 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 companies that they'll tell their their, their in, in their uh, their quarterly earnings reports to the SEC. Why are we charging this much? We can. People are paying it, right? So that's one of those disconnects. I think if Joe Biden can say, listen, on paper, I've set up the greatest economy, but I want you guys to know that Scranton Joe, Wilmington Joe, I still feel your pain. America is still not as good as it can be. That's language that I would lean into because I think whether you're, you're a working class, white, brown, black voter, Bruce, that's the kind of language that we need to hear from this president. So you're saying he's got to connect on a different level. Got to connect on a different level. Or you risk leaving an opportunity or a lane there for Donald Trump to exploit, saying, yep, look at the fancy Washington D insiders talking about the stock market. Do you own stock? Do you own stock? Looking at these individual voters, because I'm going to do everything I can to reduce the price of goods that you buy every day. And even if Donald Trump doesn't have a plan to do it, He's the mirage in the desert that people will walk to to try to drink the sand. And that's the reality of his, of his appeal. And here's the other reality of this. If you talk to the majority of eligible voters, they don't like Trump, they don't like Biden. Biden. Does that mean America is ready? And third-party candidates have never, ever done really well except fracture, you know, the typical candidates. Does Ross Perot, Amer- for example. Ross Perot. Ross yeah, Perot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, does that mean America's really ready for a viable third-party candidate? Clearly not. And listen, our two-party system is not interested in having a viable third-party candidate. You'll recall back in 2000, we had an opportunity as a state to allow people who are no-party affiliation voters or independent voters be able to participate in the party primaries. This is one rare example of both the Republican Party of Florida and the Democratic Party of Florida working together to preserve their own primary system. They, they really, and it's hard to get into it even in a format this long, they really aren't interested in expanding the electorate or making you interest in their, in, interested in their party platform as much as they are suppressing the turnout from the other side and growing the turnout from their own team. I know that sounds cynical, but that's the nature of our modern politics. It's getting your own team to come out rather than trying to, to expand the number of people that you have in your tent. So is that why uh, Joe Manchin wouldn't really join no labels and he's going to be better served to try and get people to go toward Biden and maybe convince Joe Biden that he's got to take a different tack, move more towards center? Yeah, well, who's, and, and, and I mean, who's going to vote for Joe Manchin? I mean, at the That's end of the day, what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, we have to ask ourselves that question at the end of the day. Even if, no, even if no labels had this entire organization in all 50 states and somehow that there was an unlimited funding tree for Joe Manchin, and there are a lot of people out there who would fund Joe Manchin, what kind of real appeal does he have running as a third-party president versus doing as you've suggested and trying to move the needle from within inside the party? But, Bruce, this is something going back to the emergence of Bernie Sanders in the Democratic Party. Is the progressive left of the party trying to make a decision whether or not they will split from the Democratic Party? Uh, and I try to apply pressure from the outside, or whether or not they will continue to be on the inside of the Democratic Party. But it seems like in every significant election or policy decision that's being made, lose to the centrist coalition. Think about this election as we go forward to the, to the fall, Bruce. The Republican Party remains to this day very, very frightened of its base. 
Okay, they will often pivot to make sure that the base voter, the, the individuals who are, who are representing the Freedom Caucus, for example, that these people are satisfied because as we've seen from Kevin McCarthy, they will quickly turn on the leaders of their own party if they don't get their way and if they aren't you know, going with the base. And they're going to turn on Mike Johnson if he's not there. Uh, segments already are, right? But if you look at the Democratic Party, their, their response is completely opposite. Rather than empowering the progressive base, we're going to stymie the progressive base. We're going to stomp on the progressive base. And that's really what you've seen with a lot of the... I mean, when was the last time you actually saw the squad come out and really challenge power within the Democratic Party? Very, very few and far between, and they take a lot of pride when Democrats vote as a block. Now, this is the same... And not to get off, t off point, this is the same AOC that when she was running for Congress as a Democrat said, only in the United States would Joe Biden and I be in the same party. Okay, because of our two-party system versus multi-parties across, right. yeah, across the world. Uh, but now today we see AOC rallying behind Joe Biden. So it's a, it's a very, very different approach to both bases. And I think that that's important when you look at how both of these men are going to be campaigning for president as well. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, John Rutherford, congressman from this area, basically said, you know what? Congress isn't getting anything done. Politicians aren't getting anything done. You've got people who are too far right, people who are too far left. Each side needs to come a little bit more to the, to the middle because the work that America needs done isn't getting done. Is it that simple? So based on that, you're suggesting that Congressman Rutherford may be supporting the uh, immigration bill when it arrives in the House. I'm not suggesting anything I mean, at all. I'm just saying that he's talking about, in general, the people who are at the extremes right. need to get their heads screwed on tight. Yeah, but, you know, I would say, uh, and not to speak out, you know, uh, uh, yeah, but, I mean, where is John Rutherford's voting record? I mean, one would argue right now he is in that extreme, which he's I'm just telling you what he said the other well, day. Well, fair enough, fair enough. Wait, I mean, I would say, I mean, this would be an opportunity if Congressman Rutherford really, really believes that. And if a sound but imperfect immigration bill were to be brought before the House Republicans, will he be listening to President Trump, who says reject the bill? Or will Congressman Rutherford, former sheriff, served well, served long here in Duval County, will he look at this legislation and, and, and to your what he said, hey, this isn't perfect, but in, in a divided Washington, D.C., this is the best we can get. I vote yes. Will he do that? Will Congressman Black? I guess time will, 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 will uh, Congressman Black, will, uh, uh, Congressman um, uh, Bean, will he do that? Aaron Bean. Yeah, Aaron Bean. What, what, what will the individuals who say that they want this kind of compromise to take place, will they be willing to come to it? Will they be willing to buck President Trump? Or at the end of the day, will they stick with the party? I have my own personal thoughts on Aaron <laughs> Bean, but I'm, I'm not going to go there. I can say that I'm a little surprised that the House Ethics Committee is moving to investigate Matt Gates right now. Of course. I wouldn't have expected that. So yeah. anything yeah. can happen. And, and by the way, I would say the one thing, um, if you're sitting out there and if you feel like a little bit apathetic, uh, apathetic that you can't make a change, I, I promise anybody listening to this show that if you were to email Congressman Rutherford's office or email Congressman Bean's office or call them and say, listen, I'm a rock rib Republican who's been voting in Republican primaries for a long time, and I understand this immigration bill is imperfect, but if it's going to keep fentanyl, any fentanyl for coming across our border, I think we should support it. If you have that opinion and you're a Republican, those offices are waiting to hear from you, I guarantee you. All right, you use the term apathetic. It is those who are apathetic right now, the people who, according to the polls, who are young, who are black, who are Hispanic, and who are Latino, who are basically saying, you know what? I'm not going to go ahead and vote. If you get off your duts, duffs and you do vote, it may make a difference come November. It may make a difference in the remaining primaries. That said, you're coming back in a couple of weeks, and we may broach that very topic with a couple of people who are falling into that particular bracket. Yeah, I think as we discussed earlier, it may be really interesting. You know, we always talk about this demographic in the United States, the 18-year-old, the 30-year-old demo that we, we sometimes, uh, you know, as middle-aged guys, get frustrated with because they don't turn out to vote. 
Having a, a few of these voters on or a couple of these voters on and saying, hey, listen, by the way, you're, you care enough to be on this studio, but you're apathetic to politics. Tell us why. Tell us what, what would it get to get you to the polls to really activate you as a generation, what is required. Uh, I think that could be very provocative and, mm -hmm. and also very informative. And I maintain even worse than having perhaps a view that is a bit to the left or a bit to the right is having a view that... Well, you just don't care. Apathy. On that note, Daniel, always a pleasure. Thanks, Thanks for being here. Good for having me. Thank you. We appreciate you joining us on this live streaming edition of Vote 2024, Path to the Polls. You can watch it on demand on the News for Jax YouTube channel, on News for Jax Plus, and newsforjax.com. Thanks for joining us, and have a great day. See why every day more people are choosing News for Jax, Northeast Florida, and South Georgia's number one source for local news.